As we launch into another episode of the OHL podcast, here is your all-important reminder. This is your last episode before Christmas. So sorry, you get stuck with your family, okay? You can't say, no, I got to go listen to Mike and Dan. The new podcast is out. Sorry, this is the last from Mike and Dan before the Christmas break. I'm Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. He's Dan Mahar on Twitter at Tim Wallach, just like the former Montreal Expo. Uh, Maybe over the holidays, you want to try one of these. I had a Kitchener Rangers 60 Seasons light lager from Forefathers Brewing yesterday after the game because it was the last game I broadcast before the Christmas break. And then while I was at the game and it was in Mississauga, so you make this make sense, but somebody handed me this beautiful can. It's the Pete's Lager from Bob Cajun Brewing up Peterborough Way. So if you're watching on YouTube, you have now seen the cans and you know that I will shill anything. If you want your brewery mentioned on the podcast, hey, just reach out to uh, OHLpodcast at rogers.com for sponsorship opportunities. We'd be happy to oblige. But Dan, I don't know about you if you've tried either of these uh, bevies yet, but I think every team should have a partnership with their local craft brewery. Yeah, well, I haven't tried the Bob Cajun one, but I have tried the Forefathers. I'm, I'm a light lager guy. Uh, so you combine that with the, with hockey and my favorite rink, rink and obviously I'm going to try it. So yeah, that's, yeah, can, can endorse, can and will endorse. Yeah. Also, yeah, just came across the Pete's Lager too. I imagine there might be others out there. Another reason to use OHL podcast at rogers.com, the email address, and let us know what your city is doing around cross promotion with the team but i really do think this is uh, an excellent idea and i would love to sample all 20 bevies if there are so many around the league in each uh, in each market okay uh, all kidding aside and all uh, you know looking forward to the holidays aside we do hope you're going to spend some time getting some downtime taking the break from hockey we'll talk about world juniors in just a bit but we have to start on a Really somber note this week, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, Abakar Kazbekov, the former London Knight, who tragically died this past weekend by suicide. I've got lots of thoughts on this and some mixed emotions. It's just, it's hard to really articulate, but I'll, I've done enough so far, Dan. Let me throw it over to you to, to kick this part of it off. Yeah, just obviously a heartbreaking story. Um, for, by all accounts, great kid, obviously came across an ocean at a young age to pursue this was doing really well, had battled some injuries. Uh, it just highlights Mike, what we talked about in a previous pod where uh, these kids deal with a lot and we only see the, the piece on ice uh, once or twice a week and tend to judge it on that oftentimes harshly. Uh, we know these kids are dealing with a lot in their school lives their personal lives, sometimes coaches that are on their cases, all these things can, can add up on their shoulders. And, and we, we tend to forget that. And, and I think it's a as good time as any when you have a heartbreaking, tragic story like this to just to take a step back and remind yourselves of that. These are these are kids. They're dealing with a lot and just absolute our, our best to to him and his family and his teammates and everyone who's kind of suffering right now based on based on what happened. So I got two messages in the almost immediate aftermath of the news being released by the league. And one Dan said that very thing came from a former player in this league who's been a guest on this podcast before. He's roughly our age, so let's call him a middle-aged former player, uh, now coaching actually some minor hockey. But he said that same thing that you just said around, let's not forget 
who these young men are or what these young men are. We look at them in their uniforms. We, we cheer for them. We get on their case for things, et cetera. Let's remember who the person is beneath that equipment. And of course, this was the talk of the league. And when I was in media rooms on Sunday for the last broadcast I did before Christmas, we talked about that other point you just made, which is around how tightly wound these kids are and the pressure that is associated with performance in this game. And sometimes that pressure starts at the family level. Mom and dad might be thinking or taking the approach of, hey, we've just invested a whole lot in you and we expect return on that investment sometime down the road. So if you're not performing the way we think you should be performing, then that's going to be a problem. So I think we have to be really aware of this in our own families and then as fans of this game as well. Yeah, and, and, and we know that historically in hockey culture, the the way you deal with this was to bottle it up and not not show weakness, not show that you're you're hurt by any of these things. And we know that mental illness and mental health, it is it, it is an illness. It, lots of us are prone to it. Lots of us deal with it. Uh, lots of us deal with it silently. And and so maybe just the 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 lesson here probably is just uh kindness and keep that in mind and and when you're dealing with someone try not to keep on anything else that may lead to that uh so what never judge a book by its cover because you know what's happening be beyond the cover so um so yeah it's a it's a stark lesson for us here i'm a big fan of the saying kindness costs you nothing so i like your point on that as i said at the outset i've got i've got quite a few feelings still rolling around inside my head on this and and i want to share uh, a few of them here. One of them is, uh, again, connected to something you just said, Dan, around talking about mental health. And we know that the Ontario Hockey League has a Talk Today program, which maybe we'll get into in a second. But one of the things that frustrated me when this news came out is that it came out by way of statement from the Ontario Hockey League saying that the league and the London Knights were saddened to learn of the sudden passing of Abakar Kazbekov, which of course is what this was, but I feel pretty strongly that we have to start articulating this and identifying this for what it is. Yes, it was a sudden and tragic passing, but I think it's really important when we release the information that we have the courage to say that this was a death by suicide, that Abakar Kazbekov took his own life. And, and I say that because I don't think, if we don't talk about it from the beginning, then we're continuing to kind of sweep that under the rug just a little bit. And maybe we have a harder time talking about it down the road or talking about it within the organization through the Talk Today program. And because I felt so strongly about that, I reached out to friends at the Canadian Mental Health Association. I have a good relationship with them through the work I do at my radio station. And they were super responsive because I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but this is just what I felt that it's important that we we name what we're dealing with here so that we can have an honest conversation about it. And the CMHA agreed with that sentiment, said this often lies, though, with the family. And so that's fair. I, I'm not going to come down on the league for this. It would be the family's decision and or the family's information to release. And if they choose not to, then they don't. But the Canadian Mental Health Association said by by kind of hiding in the shame, we compound the grief and we compound that grief for everybody as a family. You're you're compounding the grief for yourself. But then as a community, when we try to embrace 
the Kazbekov family, we still have questions around it. And and then to take that one step further, I told you, I have a lot on my mind about this, but I think in this political climate, it's even more important that we name this sort of thing for what it is, because I mentioned a moment ago that I had two messages in the almost immediate aftermath of this news coming out. One from a guy about our age who's played in the league before, been a guest on this podcast, and talked about the very things that we've already talked about. Young man, remember who it is that's on the ice under that equipment. The other came from a former captain in this league, not too far removed, but he was immediately going down the path of the league being held to account for its health policies around vaccine mandates. And Dan, you and I both know all too well in this political climate, when things are as polarized as they are, some people are going to pounce on a story like this and say, young man dies suddenly, healthy athlete. Oh my gosh, it must've been connected to an adverse vaccine reaction or something like that. And even furthermore, when I looked at some of the commenting on the OHL social media posts, Somebody was even speculating that this might have had something to do with the young man's Russian origins and anti-Russian sentiment. So that that should be our secondary concern. I think we identify it because if we don't, we can't talk about it. That should be number one. We have to have the courage to identify this as a death by suicide. But today, in this political climate, it's even more important to do that because otherwise these other things start gaining traction. Yeah, and like you pretty much stole, I had three major thoughts on the topic and you pretty much hit on all of them. First and foremost is, is the family and the friends of, of, of whoever it w- was involved. You want to respect their wishes and respect their privacy. And that comes first and foremost. And so, so there's, there's that piece right away. You don't want to stir up the hornet's nest and start wildly um, speculating and speaking about this w- without knowing what their wishes were. So there's that. Second thought I had was exactly what you said about naming it, naming it as suicide. When we don't, when we choose to hide it or, or cover up what the cause or not, not say what it was, are we not inherently stigmatizing it? And I think that's what we're trying to remove because if there's no shame in it, which there is not, then why is there shame in saying it or, or mentioning what it was? It, it was an illness. It was affecting this person. It was affecting lots of people. There's nothing, there's nothing to be shamed about. We want to destigmatize this, this mental health piece. So by not naming it, you're kind of inherently doing that. And I don't think you intend to. So I think, I think it, you're right. It's absolutely important to say what it is. And then the third point, of course, is just, yeah, the wild speculation. This is just over the top and I have absolutely no time for it. But it seems like any time you have something like this happen, if you don't state the facts, sometimes even if you do state the facts, you still get the, the nutcases out there taking it into their realm. But when you don't and you leave any room for interpretation, you get all this nut job stuff out there about, oh, it was vaccine related. It was... Russian invasion related, which I, I personally just have absolutely no time for. It's completely uh, false, garbage, um, disrespectful to the family, disrespectful to the victim, disrespectful to everyone. But you're absolutely right. So those those were my three main thoughts on on the topic. And it's it's a really nuanced, complicated thing. And I'm by no stretch a mental health expert either. I just know those things we have to deal with. We have to make people aware that this exists. There is no shame in it but talking it out so that the narrative doesn't get stolen from us into, into God knows where. So we're on the same page here. And I think that's really well articulated. Nobody did anything wrong here. Not a single person did anything wrong in this. 
it's just I think this is an expression by us that we hope we we can do it differently uh, and and move forward in different ways because normalizing conversations around our mental health, which I'll remind you the talk today program that the Ontario Hockey League started after, of course, the tragic death of Terry Trafford, which is almost a decade ago now, 2014, yeah. when you think about that one. And, and look how far we've come. If you want to look back on details of, of that, I remember, boy, oh boy, when that news broke and, and looking back, the number of people kind of holding themselves accountable because they just, having released Terry from the Saginaw spirit, let him go home all on his own. He's going to drive home from Michigan back to Canada. And of course he never made it. We all know what happened there, but that would never happen today when somebody is, is in duress with their mental health. You're not just going to say, okay, well here are the keys to your vehicle, drive four hours back home to Canada and call us when you get there kind of thing. So we've learned from, from that. And that's how the talk today program got started. It's normalizing all of these conversations. And I'm, I'm going to leave it with one more point because you said the same thing I've said, Dan, not an expert in any way, but something else I was told in my conversation over the weekend with the Canadian Mental Health Association. And that was something that resonated profoundly with me. People who die by suicide don't want to die. It's just that they don't know how to live. And so that's where we have to start having our conversations about making these lives worth living and reminding those, even in their darkest moments of mental duress, that there is a life worth living here. So I, I hope we move forward in a positive direction. And again, the most sincere of condolences to the Kazbekov family as they endure this really, really difficult time. Yeah, and I think that's that's a, a great spot to leave it. You're right, Mike, is that this this suicide touches everyone. It used to live in the shadows. It doesn't anymore. The more we talk about it, the better. And yeah, just absolute sincere condolences to, to his family, teammates, colleagues, everyone involved. Remember, there are resources out there right through the Canadian Mental Health Association. They've got a program called Here 24-7, and it is just that. It is there for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Don't hesitate to reach out through their various crisis support lines. Okay, as we move on and talk about other things in the Ontario Hockey League, it was quite the week. Let's start with the moves that were made, Dan, and there were some doozies. I'll, uh, I'll throw it to you to start. But I'll add that we told you last week on this podcast, don't sleep on the Sarnia sting. And boy, oh boy, did Dylan Seca go out there and get something done. Yeah, and I'll give you full credit, Mike. You called that one as uh, Sarnia was your sleeper of who might do something. And I think uh, these conversations have been happening for a while. Some GMs were a little... Uh, hesitant to act because there's so much confusion in the standings right now. Teams that were supposed to contend weren't teams that were, uh, are, that weren't supposed to are. So there's a lot of uh, guessing going on, but one thing you were pretty certain of all along was that Sarnia was going to pull a move. We we're fairly confident it was going to be to add a defender getting Christian Cairo, who uh, is equally adept in the offensive zone. So that's a pretty big uh, add there. And how much of that was tied to answering what happened up the 401 when Mike McKenzie jumped first and, and added Leighton Moore and then for, got Francesco Curry, two pretty big, bold moves from a team that was sitting in, in eighth or ninth place at the time. And some were starting to speculate what prices they get if they sold. So 
a big statement from one Western team spurs another statement. We've already seen some statements in the East. You're starting to see the market set. You're starting to see the contenders emerge. Some of the pretenders drop off. Uh, Steelheads, I'm looking at you. Um, so yeah, there it was. A, it was an interesting week, Mike. But I'm not sure what uh, what your thoughts are on the moves that went down. Well, I don't want to pump the tires of this podcast too much, but I will say again, last week we both identified that there was no way that the Kitchener Rangers were going to be in sell mode. I understand why some might've been suggesting that because there's a frustration with performing below expectations, but it just didn't seem right to me to be, well, both of us. And that's why we said it last week. So uh, I'll remind you of this too, when it comes to the Kitchener Rangers, this is really the third time under Mike McKenzie, his first year as a full-time GM, 2017, 2018, was about as all in as I've seen the Kitchener Rangers since 2008, really. And he made some big additions, loses in game seven, double overtime of the West final to the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. What I think people forget is that there was a year in there that got canceled because of COVID-19. 2020, the season got shortened and that Ranger team, while unlikely to finish first, it looked like London had that wrapped up, but boy, oh boy, was that a good-looking Ranger team with arguably the best goaltender in the league in Jacob Ingham. But we never got to see the fruits of that roster. So don't forget that there was that opportunity there. And now again, two, three years out, the team is looking at it again. So in talking to Mike McKenzie, what I liked about his take on this, and granted, there's a bit of swagger attached to it, but he said, when it's your turn in the cycle, you don't you don't pass. You don't say, uh, you don't fold. You you push chips in. And that's exactly what he's doing. And I don't know. I, I kind of like it, like him for it. And 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 I would like any GM that does that. We've talked about Hamilton hitting that cycle dead on and going to back to back championships in the cycle, right? 2018, they win the championship. 2022, they win the championship again. I think every fan base should want that from their organization. Oh, for sure. And, and, and I lost count Mike this week in the past week, uh, how many people came to me and said, Kitcher, fine. What are they doing? They're terrible. I, I, I think that is to completely misunderstand a few things about how junior hockey works. And you just hit on the big one where it, it's a cycle. You have your, your turn comes around the really good, well-run organizations. It might come around a little more frequently, uh, but it comes around. And once it goes past you, you can't get it back the next year. And when you look at the composition of this Kitchener Rangers roster, there's just no way they were going to be able to sell and contend next year, losing too many pieces. The the age composition of this roster was built for this year. And, and I think you had an underachieving team, uh, an underperforming team so far, probably learning a new system with a new coach, probably uh, dealing with a couple of key injuries, but you had a GM there who, like you just said, Mike, you want your GMs to identify what you really have. And I think Mike McKenzie probably correctly identified this is a roster that content that can contend in the West this year. It's an older roster that went to the second round last year, added some great pieces this year. What are the elements that it's missing? And I think when you look at a Leighton Moore, you got a, they were a little bit lacking in speed and ability to gain the offensive zone. There's a kid that plays 25 minutes a night minimum that can do that consistently. That one little element just elevated everyone else on the team so far and what we've seen. And, and when you have a GM that can identify those types of things, short of goal scorer, in comes our Curry. Suddenly you can take a team with a piece or two and move them from what are you doing 
to contender, and especially in a year when there are, there are no beasts in the West. So, so yeah, I think Mike, you're right. You do want your GM to look for these things and do these things, but you also have to understand where teams are at in their cycles and what are the factors in, in their performance so far. And I think you and I both knew Kitchen was not going to be a seller this year. They were going to be a buyer come hell or high water. And, and Mike McKenzie just showed that. I don't want to dwell too much on the Kitchener Rangers because there are 19 other teams in the league. But I will also say, and acknowledging that it's not as though they've had to play the Ottawa 67s, the North Bay Battalion, the London Knights, et cetera. But the hottest team going into Christmas is Kitchener with six wins. And over those six wins, additions notwithstanding, outscoring the opposition 32 to seven. You mentioned coaching a moment ago and Whatever it is that Chris Dennis is preaching, this team is really starting to understand and executing. And I can tell you, again, I, I watched them so much, but there was a point in their game on Sunday versus Mississauga in the third period where the Steelheads were on the power play and they barely touched the puck. The puck possession game where if it's not their reset is really, really impressive to watch just as a guy that's up in the booth observing from on high. Yeah, yeah. And I think when you look at that defense core, and I think what Chris Dennis is trying to build there is a roster that is stingy and keeps the puck out of their net, beefed up the goaltending. And there isn't a weak link on that defense core. And there might not be a name that jumps out at you and says, you know, Pavel Minchikov or what have you, but solid top to bottom. When you look at a player like Matthew Andonovsky, who's arguably the most improved player on that roster is fighting for, you know, number six minutes. That's a pretty solid core. And I, and I, I had someone comment to me that, you know, just because players are older doesn't mean they're better. And I actually kind of disagree with that to some extent, because it's true just because you're older, doesn't mean you're better, but by weight of averages, it does. And by and large, as players age in the league, they get better. And, I just throw one more player again, don't want to dwell on Kitchener here, but one more player that's a, a prime case in point is Simon Motu on the decor there who make him in, uh, a 19 year old. Now he understands his role, understands his limitations, understands what he, where he can help the team, what he is and what he isn't. And just that maturity, you've taken a guy who is a, a fringe defender in the league now to, to a guy that can play in your top pair. And that's the difference in age sometimes in this league. So the age factor is critical. When you look at a roster that's a lot of 18 and 19 year olds, look out, they're going to be able to do some damage. Two more things with the Western Conference before we talk a little bit about the East. And that is this, there's been some conversation, at least that I've heard around the league about the London Knights. What are the London Knights going to do now? Is it going to be one of those years where they're far from terrible, but they still move some pieces out, finish maybe around fifth or something like that, and then are really set for the next couple of years again? Mark my words, you crazy if you think that's happening. The London Knights will make an addition. I'm almost positive of it. And if you said that you had the Windsor Spitfires, the OHL champion bridesmaids on your bingo card in first place at Christmas, you're a liar. But what do those two teams do in your opinion, Dan? Well, yeah, I, I, I absolutely. You'd have to check into a mental asylum if you don't think the London Knights are going to do something because... Dale Hunter has come out of the woodwork in years when they weren't supposed to contend, but they were floating around fourth, fifth in the conference and said, okay, we're going to add because we're, we're on the cusp. Well, they're right at the top of the division right now. And Dale Hunter doesn't often sit on that and say, yeah, we're good. We're going to, we're going to ride it out for next year. So uh, I do think there are some holes in that roster. I, I do think there are some 
weaknesses and vulnerabilities that they are going to look to patch up. So I, I don't want to speculate on names and, and who they're necessarily going to bring in. But I think, I think if you look around the league, you can see some, some potentials there where the London Knights are going to add a piece or two for sure. Uh, Windsor, I, I believe they are going to as well. They were my sleeper last week. And, and the reason I believe they are is just the, the main point being that what I said earlier with uh, a contention, a contender last year where they went to the finals came back this year, weren't supposed to do much, moved out some bodies, have been great in the first half. And I think there's a, a feeling like you need to reward your kids there for that hard work and, and take advantage of some of that experience they gained last year. And maybe can we, can we add a second year here? Can we, the West isn't great. It's wide open. We're right in the mix. Maybe there's a piece we can add. So maybe not as aggressive as London, just based on what picks and prospects they have available to move. But I expect at least a fringe move from Windsor for sure. It's really impressive what they're doing there in the border city, sitting in first place at Christmas time. I never in a million years would have seen it with London, very solid in goal. They've got a pretty nice decor. If a piece, or should I say when a piece is added, it's going to be up front, in my humble opinion. The East gets really intriguing too, because Brant Clark could of course be returned to the Barry Colts after the World Juniors. We fully expect Shane Wright to be returned to the Kingston Frontenacs after the World Juniors. Do either player, does either player stay in the East? Those become really interesting pieces for Barry and Kingston to deal with. They do. And as we know, Mike, before the World Juniors, often these discussions are finished. We, the player knows his destination, just a matter of waiting to announce it. I'd be surprised if that's the case right now. And, and the reason I say that is if you're the Kingston Frontenacs, uh, would you not want to wait and see if that price comes up for Shane Wright based on world junior performance? Uh, some, some recency bias about how, how well he's shown in that tournament, maybe get you an extra pick or two. Uh, we were still waiting on what Seattle's going to do. So there's a few factors at play there, but I, I, I think you might see a fairly late bidding war in the Shane Wright sweepstakes based on a few factors. Brant Clark, that's one that I'm, I'm throwing the dice on, Mike, because huge piece. Barry could recoup a lot of picks and prospects in that, in that deal, but they've got to feel like their, their roster was built to compete this year as well from an age standpoint. And they got to feel like adding a piece like that, much like Kitchener did, is one huge piece like that going to make a big difference? And you got to figure it will. It's not like they've been a train wreck. They're, they're hovering about 500, starting to get it together. They may just hold on to that guy. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Not, I, I don't know is the answer. So they may, yes. Marty Williamson has some really big decisions to make there. No question about it. Okay. Uh, and obviously we're into the trade freeze now. I'll put freeze in air quotes because we know even though the freeze is technically in place, deals can get done. They just, shh, we won't announce it until the freeze is over, but bah, we'll just move on from trades. Uh, part of the reason, of course, for the freeze, not just the holiday break, but the world juniors for players that are competing there uh, on this tournament and our good buddy Elam, who must be our number one fan on the podcast. Thanks again for the uh, email to ohlpodcast at rogers.com. We respond to all of them, by the way, but Elam's quite excited for the World Juniors too. Uh, wanted to know about our favorite World Junior moment, if we have one. And, and before we get to that, uh, thoughts, Dan, on, I mean, personally, and as much as I hate this, because I always feel like there's so much pressure on the Canadian kids, but I don't see a serious threat to Canada in this one. Am I, am I out of my mind? 
you know, that's tough because there is definitely firepower that you see around. Obviously, with the Russians not participating, that takes a huge roadblock out there. You always, you can never look past the Americans. They always have so much talent available to them. We know they went heavy on the NCAA again, and they're a little bit thin on U.S. national team development program players this year. A lot of uh, other talent on that roster, and it doesn't look like the dynamic offense that sometimes we see out of the Americans, but they've got some really potent players on the back end. The top four on that D is is remarkable from a puck moving standpoint and creating creating offense so don't give them a power play is my advice and then you look at finland and finland's got some real firepower up front too they've got uh a, a few players they're playing in the men's league over there and showing really well not to mention the really high high picks with Kemo and and a few a few snipers on that roster so you can't look past finland either so i, I i'm with you i think canada is easily the favorite but there are teams that can sting you there, just not quite as many as we're used to. With no disrespect intended to my friends south of the 49th, especially in Erie, Saginaw, and Flint, where I'll still be traveling this year, I don't see the U.S. as that big a threat, but Finland does intrigue me a lot. And not only for some of the snipers, but they've got a nice, mobile, big decor. And I think that's going to be really interesting and could cause teams some fit so i'm really curious how the fins uh, shake out in this tournament yeah i kind of i kind of expect and there's a you know there's some preseason games a pre-tournament games i should say that we might get a, a little bit of a read on but what intrigues me about finland is just that the a couple players that are, are not just playing bit roles but playing fairly key roles in in the men's league right now and so that there's a maturity and and level of uh professionalism there that they'll bring to the tournament where We've seen it before where they they can frustrate teams like Canada if they get a lead. Uh, they can they can grind it out till it's you know one one late or two one late and suddenly force Canada and Amer and the Americans into doing some things they wouldn't do, getting outside of their system. And then they surprise you with a goal and they can really hold a lead. So so yeah, I'm, I, Finland's one of the teams that intrigues me the most in this tournament. We'll we'll see how it goes, but I, I see plenty of reason for Finland to be optimistic about meddling in this tournament. I don't know if you have a, a favorite world junior tournament that or memory that pops into your head on Elam's question. For me, one of the ones that always pops into my mind, and it's not for any good reason, is the 2011 gold medal game in Buffalo. I was there. I got sent. So the best part was being there without paying a nickel for it. I was sent to cover it for my job. And it's 3 nothing Canada after 40 I'm meeting a colleague in the concourse for a beer. We're having a great time. And then, of course, we all know what happened there. Biggest comeback in Russian history. And, and Canada gets stunned five to three. And, oh, did that timeout get called at the wrong time? Yes. Yes, it probably did. But hindsight's twenty twenty. I also remember very fondly what's now fondly recalled as the punch-up in Pistani. Or, I forgive me if my pronunciation's off, but that was the... Uh, at the time, Czechoslovakia, now Slovakia, in 87, when it was a nothing game for the Russians and a much more meaningful game for Canada, that Canada was leading 4-2 in the second when all HE double hockey sticks broke out and they turned off the lights in the arena in an attempt to quell the melee because Russia and Canada was in a, it was a bench-clearing brawl. My youthful uh, hockey enthusiasm remembers that fondly. And certainly, on the positive side, I'll just say Jordan Everly. Can you say anything else but Jordan Eberle in 09? Those would certainly stand out for me. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you hit on a bunch of them. There's so many great memories from the World Juniors. I, Buffalo is the only one I've personally attended. Um, and I think we all got sick of the Kuznetsov arm flap after that one. We, we've seen enough of it since in the NHL. But uh, yeah, to pinpoint it to one or two, it's, it's really tough. I think for me, there's so many highlights that just stick out in your head from the, like obviously Everly with the game on the line or you can go last year with Mason McTavish's ridiculous goal line stand. But I, I think from a tournament standpoint for me, it'd have to be that 2005 team just because it was the most dominant team I have seen in the world juniors, the Canada ice that year. And you just look at the, the names that went on to the NHL and uh, you know, you got Mike Richards as your captain. He was arguably the seventh or eighth best player off that team into the NHL. It's just a, top to bottom start to finish that tournament just a dominating performance and uh so that one really sticks out in my mind as as key memory i think danny Savret was on that team too former member or former guest on this podcast and one more quick note about that 2011 tourney in buffalo i met tom cochran at the game great guy <laughs> sitting a section over i'm like hey there's tom cochran Okay, uh, let's move on. I want to steal a couple of things from our friends, Merrick and Frege at the 32 Thoughts podcast, because they talked about a couple of things that sparked a thought for me. And then I sent you a text, Dan, and here we are to talk about them on the OHL podcast. One of the things that Frege and Merrick were talking about was commissioners in major junior hockey across the CHL. Gilles Corteau has announced that the end of next season, well, really, it's the end of this season and then he'll be a consultant to help the new person on until the end of 23-24 but that's going to mark the end of Gilles Courteau's reign and that's 47 years I do believe if I've got the math correct that he was running the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. Ron Robson's contract is up at the end of next season in the dub. He's been there 20 and a bit years but what you could be seeing of course is a change in leadership on let's say the the coasts of the Canadian Hockey League in the Q and the dub. And then, oh yeah, right there in the middle is some guy named David Branch in the Ontario Hockey League. He's been in the job since 1979. Should we, would it be premature of us to talk about the retirement of one Mr. David Branch? Well, I mean, you know, maybe cap the term limits at 40 years because 44 is a bit much. So. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it, it's, it's, there's so much in that commissioner's job that we don't know about. And I think that's the only point I would raise. No, I, I think there's no doubt these men have done a, a amazing job over the years of building the game, building junior hockey, building up the CHL brand. I, I think we'd be remiss to suggest there haven't been a number of issues around obviously office activities that have occurred, some of the disciplinary issues and whatnot. I think it's a very nuanced, complex job around recruitment, uh, sponsorships, relationships with parents and families and agents. There's all kinds of things that go on with the commissioner role that require a skill set. You have to be a lawyer, you have to be a negotiator, you have to be all these different things. So I'm the last person to criticize any of these people. The only thing I would say about Dave Branch and maybe the, his era coming to an end is, is just the communication to the public it easily could have improved over the, there's a lot of fans and fan bases and uh, communities left guessing about how decisions are made, what's going on, certainly around discipline around uh, and any kind of communication coming from the league is sparse. And I, I don't know that that helps the brand. I get sometimes you have to be a little bit shrouded in what you can share, but at the same time, 
you're supposed to engage with your fan base and you, and you have to bring them into the conversation and, and give them your rationale and let them know what's going on. And I think there's been a bit of an opportunity missed there. So in the context of commissioners and coming and going, uh, I, I think there's never, it's never a bad thing to get new blood after such a long time and some new ideas and fresh approaches, but uh, boy, what a big job that is. I think you, you hit it right there. When you talk about the, the magnitude of the job, I'm with you. I've always wished the league did a better job at communicating, particularly around discipline so that fan bases understand, so that the public, the, the, the parents, the families, the teams understand why their son, player, favorite player, if you're a fan, is out for this length of time and what led to it. I, I think that's a, a really good point. And like I said, I've long been on the league's case for that. I'll stay on the league's case for that. I do think it's important to keep those lines of communication open, but also in the grand scheme of all of the nuances of the job, I think I also understand why it's probably like way down here on the, the pecking order. And I'm now holding, if you're not watching on YouTube, I'm holding my hand so low, it's not even on screen right now. There are much higher priorities for the commissioner to deal with. But I'm going to say a couple more things, and I'm going to tell a story, too. I'm not sure that I'm allowed to tell the story, but the party that told it to me didn't say I couldn't. So if I offend either party involved in the story, you can come back at me later, but we'll get to that in a second. I, I'll be honest that I'm a big fan of David Branch and the way he conducts himself. He's certainly always been accessible to me as a member of the media when I need something, when I want to have an interview, that sort of thing. Uh, my predecessor, who I learned from in this business don cameron spoke very highly of mr branch that says a lot to me i think we can look at some of the advancements and how progressive this league has been under david branch is it perfect of course not but i also remember brian kilray a guy whose you know word i may take to the bank and he was on this podcast i keep talking about previous episodes you should spend christmas going back listening to all the episodes and brian kilray said that he told his owner in ottawa that if David Branch ever ended his time as commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, he should sell his franchise and get out. So we have to remember that side of it too. And I hate to say, well, it's only, only business after all, but this is a business too. So I'm just sharing that with you. You can do with that information, whatever you want and, and make your decision on how that makes you feel. But I, I can see why he has the support that he has. So the other thing that I have come to learn and I don't think I'm telling tales out of school when I tell this. This is Dave Branch's league, period. We're all just operating within it. And, and Dave Branch kind of calls all of the shots. So here, here's a little story I can share with you that tells, I, I think that illustrates that very well. And for the purposes of this story, you have to, uh, in, you have to picture Dave Branch, please, in a pair of sunglasses. Okay, so Dave Branch, commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, rocking his sunnies as my kid would say, he's got the shades on and he is driving from the offices in Toronto to Flint. So this would be 2015-ish, whenever the first big blow up was with Rolf Nilsson, right? The whole, with the players dropping off their sweaters, they're not going to play. They have to, they've now banned Rolf Nilsson from even being anywhere near his team and the league is going to go in and kind of take over the franchise. So this is all happening in real time. Dave Branch is in his vehicle, wearing his sunglasses, driving from Toronto to Flint, Michigan. And in the passenger seat with him is one of his executives in the league office by the name of Joe Birch. So they're driving from Toronto to Flint, Michigan, 
when Dave Branch's phone rings. And it just so happens to be one of those pesky members of the media by the name of Bob McKenzie. And Bob McKenzie's on the phone. And so Dave takes the call and Bob's like, listen, I hear there's some trouble in Flint. I hear that the league's taking over the franchise. I need some comment on this. What can you tell me? And Dave, who has a, I already mentioned, pretty good relationship with the media. I'm not going to claim to be Bob McKenzie's status, but he said, listen, Bob, I'm in the process of doing something right now. I promise you'll be the first to know, but I need some time. Can I get back to you? Bob McKenzie, good guy. He says, yep, no problem, whatever. So that phone call's done. They're still making their trip. It's going to take you about, what, four to five hours to get from Toronto down to Flint. Before they make it, before they make it to Flint, Bob McKenzie's back on the phone again. And David Branch is taking the call again. He's like, listen, I've got this confirmed, this confirmed, blah, blah, blah. So now Branch knows he's got to, you know, let stay ahead of the story because you never want to get let the story be ahead of the league. So so Dave Branch acknowledges, yes, here's what's going on. The league is going in. They're going to take over and operate the franchise. And then Bob McKenzie, being the good reporter that he is, says, well, who's going to be the GM? Now, remember, this is Dave Branch wearing his sunglasses, driving the car with Joe Birch in his passenger seat. And down come the sunglasses on the bridge of his nose. And he looks over at the passenger seat where Joe Birch is sitting. He's still talking to Bob McKenzie on the phone. Ask the question, who's going to be the GM? And Dave Branch, while looking at Joe Birch, says, Joe Birch is going to be the GM. And this was news to Joe Birch. He found out as they were driving to Flint. To make the story even more amusing, Joe Birch's phone starts to blow up because Bob McKenzie, he's got a bit of a following reports this information. Joe Birch's family didn't even know. So now Joe Birch is doing damage control on the home front saying, honey, yes, I know I'm, yeah, I'm going to be the GM in Flint. Don't know. I don't have, we're not going to relocate, blah, blah. Just imagine all of that going on, which is all just to say again, that it's Dave Branch's league. And here we are all just operating within it as best and as safely as we can. Yeah, that's a, that's an awesome story, and I, I don't know if Joe Birch has made it up to his wife and family yet, because I wouldn't be able to sell that. It would be, yeah, right, you didn't say yes to this. You know you said yes. So, so yeah, uh, what a story. But, yeah, I think uh, for political junkies, the way I always looked at the job of commissioner and Dave Branch, what he does, it's ba- almost like a party whip is more than any, more than anything, where you're privy to all the information that, that the prime minister or premier are giving you, and you have to sort out all that information, and then you're in backroom brokering the conversations with all the various interests and lobby groups saying, thou will compile, comply, thou will get on board. Uh, I will hear your, uh, your concerns in confidence and they will stay in confidence and my decision will be final. That's kind of the gist of how that job works and, and taking all everything that's fired at him. And that story you just gave is, is, is about his, extreme an example as you can get of what can get thrown at you in that job and you have to you have to hold the ship together i would like to point out again that the parties that shared that story with me did not say it was not for sharing so <laughs> I, if you want something off the record tell me it's off the record and that's that i think it's a fun story i don't think it's going to offend anybody it's just a little glimpse into life in the ontario hockey league one of the other things that fridge and merrick brought up that really and this is what i get pretty excited about this is all this is all me this is one of the bones i like to chew on in this league and this time it's not realignment it is though the proposal that i'm hearing in the national hockey league for an 84 game schedule which i guess they might make work with the pa if they cut down on 
exhibition preseason games, whatever, and, and things like that. But the idea, if I understand this correctly, Dan, is to um, allow for more geographical rivalries. Is that what they're hoping to do in the pro leagues? That, yeah, that seems to be the conversation. It's always about beefing up rivalries, which, uh, you know, I have my own thoughts on for sure. But uh, yeah, if, the, if it means throwing away some of those useless exhibition games, absolutely do away with them. Okay. So I don't know, like, I think my idea might fly in the face of that a little bit because it might reduce, no, I don't think it does because there's, there are only 20 teams in the national or in the Ontario hockey league, pardon me. And I've, I've long been interested in this idea of rebalancing or unbalancing, if you will, the schedule, because frankly, and look, I admit maybe because I'm in it for as, as long as I have been, you get tired of, you know, eight meetings against one team every year. Like I, I love Owen sound. Do I need to go up there four times every year? I don't know. But then I think from the fan perspective, maybe they get, you know, four visits from one team to your city. So I've always wondered about this, especially, and, and I think this argument holds weight even more. So again, this year, when there's a Michael Misa in the league as an exceptional player, if you're in the Eastern conference, you are going to get the chance to see Michael Misa three times in his entire Ontario Hockey League career. This year, next year, and the year after. And it's all, in all likelihood, he's off to the National Hockey League. Now, what if in, in future years, Michael Misa is off at the World Juniors when the Saginaw Spirit come to your side on the East? What if Michael Misa is injured or sick? The point is, in the men's entire, young man's entire career, you might get to see him three times if you're in the East. So my proposal is this, instead of playing those cross-conference teams just once and have them come to you once, why don't we make it three teams against the other conference, okay? So 10 teams in the other conference, there's 30 of your games. And then in your own conference, instead of eight against some teams and six against some other teams, I get the divisional rivalries, but what if we just played every team in our own conference four times. So nine other teams in your conference times four is 36. You're playing everybody on the other conference, all 10 teams, three times, there's 30. Now you're at 66 games. And then you have two extra games, extra games. You play those as rivalry games, schedule them against, you know, Oshawa, Peterborough, uh, Kitchener, London, uh, Windsor and Saginaw. I don't know what the wherever your rivals are schedule those and that becomes the new schedule and then one year because that's that odd number with the other conference the three one year you would travel to that conference twice and play there the next year that team would travel to you twice so it kind of balances out on the cost side and so on and so forth and i think i think maybe something like that would give the fans a little more variety in the opponents they see and spice things up a little bit in the Ontario Hockey League. So I want three against the other side. I want four against every team on your side and those two extra games in there to make 68, play them against your favorite rival. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I thought I was going to be going against the grain here. I didn't think I'd get much agreement because I'm very much against this whole fabricate rivalry thing, throw them against each other so many times that they can't possibly help but hate each other and create intrigue. I just get sick of seeing the same teams over and over. And I think that's a sentiment expressed by a lot of fans. I hear it at the auditorium when you go there and you see it's a one sound again for the sixth time before Christmas. And it's no disrespect to those teams. They're all still entertaining games, but you want to see the variety. And I think 
there's some fantastic players playing on every team and the more opportunities you get to see them, if you get to see them each three or four times a year, as opposed to the same team eight, nine times, that's way better from an entertainment standpoint. You don't need created rivalries to get the intrigue up. These teams are all up for these games. They need the points. Uh, there's plenty of, of physicality and tension in these games, regardless of who they're playing. So I think that's a bit of a, a nonsensical argument. And for the, those that are disagreeing, just, just, just hear me out for one more second. Think back to when the NHL did the all Canadian division, how sick were you of seeing those teams over and over again by the end of that season? And I know it was because of the pandemic and they had to, point still stands when you're seeing the same teams too often it's boring it's the opposite of what they're trying to create so i'm 100 with you mike give us more variety more often let us see those players more often it's a crime to have some of those players like misa and mcdavid and who and you name it in this league and only see them twice in a calendar year once in the hometown all right just to tie something back to what we were talking about earlier with the league and how complex it is just as a business model uh just as we're talking about this, it makes me think, and this is just random piece of trivia for you, but teams have to already now have, I think it was by last week, it's either by last weekend or by the end of this week, either way, it's very, it's either just past or just coming up. They already have to have their dates in for next year. That's how far in advance they're trying to figure out arena availability, road trips, all of these different things. Just imagine we're not even at Christmas time. We, we, we're not even in the second half of the schedule by number of games played and teams are already looking at next year's calendar to say, okay, when do we want our home dates? When is the arena available? All of these other things. And they start trying to piece together the 23, 24 schedule already. Wouldn't it be great if there was more variety on it? Okay. Enough on all of that. This is something, Dan, that I know you wanted to bring to the table. It's the perfect time for it because it's Christmas time. Why don't we hand out a gift? And I think these people in particular are going to love the gift that you're bringing to the OHL podcast this week. And and I know I'm going to get flack for this. This is probably going to be the most emails we've ever gotten because (laughs) it's just, you don't do this, but I wanted to give an early Christmas gift to the officials in this league. And I don't know if it's just my observational opinion or if there's any data to back this up, but I feel like the, the standard of officiating in the OHL this year has been as high as I've seen it. Uh, now I'm not saying they don't make mistakes and bad calls. We've all seen it. Uh, it's going to happen. But across the league, in my experience, and I've watched a lot of games from a lot of markets, I just feel like the officiating has been really good this year. And it hasn't been a hot topic of conversation for that reason. So and for me, an early Christmas uh, nod to the officials for the job you're doing in this hockey season. So I think this is the third time on this episode of the OHL podcast. I'm saying go back and check out a previous episode. But if you missed the one with Conrad Hache, it was out in uh, September, late September, just as the season was getting underway. Go back and give it a listen. They invest, the league does a lot of time in their officials. That combine that just happened this past spring, the first one ever, which I loved the idea beforehand. Conrad gives a lot of insight into that, the amount of work that goes into this. And I'm with you, Dan. I think that these guys as as part-time employees, contractors really of the Ontario Hockey League, uh, given everything else that's going on in their lives, do a pretty good job of keeping up with a game that moves at the speed that hockey moves and the rule changes that keep coming back and keep changing and all. So I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, I think they're doing a, they're doing a solid job all around. So Christmas gift to our zebras 
in the Ontario Hockey League this year. Time to get to our prospects of the week. We always pick one that's standing out to us. Uh, I'll let you lead us off here, Dansky. Who you got? Uh, actually, if you don't mind me flipping the script, I have a, an inkling I might have the same guy as you, and I do a backup, so I'm actually going to hand you a Christmas gift and let you go first. Okay. Wow. Wouldn't it be interesting that we have the same guy? Well, I, I'm going to, if we have the same guy, then we're, we're on some serious, we've been doing this too long. It might be our last podcast. Okay. I am, uh, I'm going East. We have the same guy. Are you East? Uh, I have one from East, one from West. So I'm going to see who yours is. (laughs) I'm going to Sudbury. Yep. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to the big dog. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to somebody else on the Sudbury Wolves. And I'm going to take a look at Matthew Mania this week because he's a, he's a guy that's a C prospect according to NHL central scouting, but, He's a guy, I don't know if it's the the Derek McKenzie bump with the new coach or what it is. And really, you got to go beyond, I think, the points. But the points over the past seven games have looked pretty good. Two goals, eight assists for 10 points in his past seven. He's a plus nine over that stretch. And I don't know if there's a comfort level there, the ice time that's coming there. Matthew Mania is is a guy that's a, a bit of a bruising defenseman. He's got a sharp first pass, but he's a he's a bigger body back there more of the stay-at-home types you might not expect the points but the points have really caught my attention of late and I just wonder if he's flourishing a little bit under the new head coach but my prospect of the week is the Sudbury Wolves Matthew Mania very good yeah yeah definitely on the radar with the uptick he's had since Derek McKenzie's taken over um and yeah so I'll give you I'll give you both mine if that's okay it's before Christmas obviously the big dog I felt like I've picked him before but with the 17 game point streak Quinton Musty has just been on fire. I think it'd be remiss not to give him a nod. Um, I will say quickly, even though I gave a great shout out to the officials, I'm not sure what slew footing is in this league anymore. Quinton Musty got thrown out of the game yesterday for a quote unquote slew foot. Watch the video multiple times. I don't see a slew foot there at all. So I'm just giving a shout to, to Mr. Musty there that I, I think he got a raw deal on that one. I'm not sure how it was reviewed and, and upheld. Just my opinion. I think there's some must be some direction around slew footing there that's a topic for another day but quentin musty and then the other one i was going to give you mike and again i i never want to keep this very kitchener centric but i i think pre-christmas i have to give a shout to carson rakoff whose game has elevated significantly in the last couple of weeks particularly the last couple of games where i felt like always if there was the defensive commitment and that commitment to keeping your brain engaged coming back into your zone how much more that would translate into the offense and i think we're starting to see that particular player make that connection and in the last couple of games he's been as big a reason as any why the kitchen rangers have had an uptick um so i sorry to go off script there mike and give you two but i'm going with uh, carson rakoff and then a little nod for quentin musty as well i would be happy to give rakoff an honorable mention in all honesty if i hadn't taken hunter brustevich last week and i don't want to be called a homer again give me a break it's christmas uh i think rakoff has been terrific especially at both ends of the ice, which is nice to see from this young man as he develops into a, a high-level prospect for the National Hockey League. You mentioned Musty's 17-game burner. How about Logan Morrison in 19 games going into Christmas? He's got a point streak. And we haven't even mentioned yet, we just will quickly as we wrap up, how about that comeback by the Ottawa 67s this past weekend? They are down 4-1 to the Oshawa Generals with two minutes to play. In fact, with a minute and 32 seconds to play. And at 1828, they get the goal to make it 4-2. 
And then in the next 69 seconds, they get two more to tie the game in regulation, force OT that solves nothing, but then Ottawa wins it in a shootout. Down 4-1 with 92 seconds to play. And Ottawa comes back to win the game in a shootout. Sorry, Oshawa, but I don't know that you'll see the likes of that again. No, and you know, if for all the talk of how great the World Cup final was, if you're not watching the OHL, you're missing out because there are storylines like this almost every week. And I question I have for him, I guess, how much this week do you think Oshawa will be working on their play with the other team's goalie pulled? <laughs> a lot is that the answer you're looking i would for say here? they might they might have a few schemes to work on oh boy oh boy yeah that's a tough one yeah all of this you talk about anything in the ontario hockey league or how much how interesting it is five goals from matt maggio this past week with the uh windsor spitfires it could go on and on but we promised you you got to get to christmas you got to spend time with your family there's no more mike and dan time we will come back on january the 3rd with our next episodes. We're going to take a break for Christmas too. The league will get back in that week between Christmas and New Year's, and then we'll be back the first week of January to pick up where the league is at. And of course, one week after that. So two episodes from now is trade deadline Tuesday on uh, January the 10th. So, but our next episode is going to be on January the 3rd. So to you, Dan, and all of yours, a very Merry Christmas, happy holidays and all that good stuff. Yeah. Happy holidays to you, Mike, and to everyone that take the time to listen. Thank you. And uh, hold your loved ones close. We certainly appreciate you taking the time to listen. We'd love it too. If you subscribe, leave us a review, send an email anytime. OHL podcast at rogers.com. He's Dan Mahar on Twitter at Tim Wallach, just like the former Montreal Expo. I'm Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. This is the OHL podcast. We're back on January the 3rd. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.